And my name is Ralph Peters, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I pastor our seniors, and I also look after the, the area of care for those of you who don't me, know me. And uh, Pastor Chair and Pastor Holly are, are off on a well-deserved break. This is a little bit of a holiday. How you doing there, Chair and Holly? They're probably watching right now to make sure I don't say anything heretical. Okay. So, uh, I just saw my daughter and her two boys here visiting us from Abbotsford, and our, uh, my daughter asked me, Dad, what, what, are, you, uh, what are you preaching on, on on Sunday? And I said, well, that whole, you know that saying, uh, you know, it's easier to ask forgiveness than, than permission. It's easier to ask for permission or forgiveness than it is for permission. She said, Dad, you're, you're speaking on that like you're one to talk. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we, we all know that sometimes it's, it seems, it just seems easier to just go ahead and do what you're not supposed to be doing, right? Whether that's in the workplace or in, that's in the home, young people, or our husbands, that's, you know, you know what I'm talking about, wives, you know, it's just, just do it. And you'll ask for forgiveness later, right? We all know that feeling. And, you know, people, I've been thinking about this whole principle for quite some time now, for a couple years. And uh, this saying, something that we, we, uh, we joke about, but we actually do. We actually do do it. I, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody here, right? Uh, is this... Uh, a true saying. Is this, is this true? Is it easier to ask forgiveness than for permission? Well, I, I just wonder how many of you have tried that this week. And how many of you would say, you know what? Uh, you know, that isn't working out too good for me right now. In fact, at home, it's not really peaceful because... I, I kind of thought it would be easier to ask for forgiveness and for permission. And, well, it hasn't been going that well. On the job, no, it's, it's really not going that well. In fact, Ralph, I would probably say that right now in my life, the way things are going, I would say that, man, do I wish I would have asked for permission. Because my, my pathetic I'm sorry, really didn't cut it. And if I just asked for permission, it would have gone, gone a lot better than, for me. So today I want to talk about the principle of permission as it relates to our interaction with people, with our neighbors, or our friends, our, our co-workers, people in our community. There's a story in the New Testament in the book of John in chapter 4 about Jesus meeting a woman at a well. Kind of a, an everyday experience for the people of that day, for the people of that culture. John chapter 4. I want to read the first four verses for you and then, and then talk a little bit about uh, uh, the cultural setting for you. Okay, so the first four verses. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea 
and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, this story that we're going to read in just a few moments takes, actually takes place pretty close to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Jesus and his disciples are in the southern part of Israel. That whole area was referred to as Judea. And Jesus' disciples are baptizing people who had heard about Jesus, were coming to Jesus, and they were baptizing uh, people. Kind of the same baptism that John, some of you know uh, who I'm talking about, John the baptizer or John the Baptist, the same kind of baptism that he was baptizing people with. Okay? And uh, so... Jesus finds out, the story tells us, that the Pharisees know that he's baptizing more than, John's, than, than John was baptizing. Actually, his disciples were, right? We read that. So Jesus pulls his disciples together and he moves his operation, so to speak, back up to, to Galilee, the northern part of the country. Now, it's not for sure why exactly Jesus left Judea so suddenly, but I get the feeling that it really had something to do with baptism and it had to do with some other probably religious things that were going on at the time. And at this early stage of Jesus' ministry, he, he probably didn't want to get involved in any controversies at this point in his ministries. And so he decides to go back to Galilee. And verse 4 tells us that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria was this this area right between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And the Samaritans, the people who lived in Samaria, obviously, the Samaritans were despised by the Jew, Jews. And there was a centuries-old feud that was going on between them. You see, after King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was divided. It was split in two. And the, and the kingdom of, the, uh, of, of Israel, actually, of Rehoboam, uh, stayed in the south. And the other kingdom of Jeroboam went to the north. And it didn't take long for this kingdom in the north to really get involved into uh, uh, idolatry, into uh, denying of God into turning their back on God and all those kinds of things and it didn't take long before God had to do something about it and so uh, he sent the Assyrians and the Assyrians invaded and took the people well not all the people but most of the people captive who lived in Israel okay the northern the northern peace and that was about 70 or 720 BC and uh, uh but it didn't take long, okay, after this, that Judah to the south, for the most part at the beginning, they were following God, but then they turned their back on God as well and, and got involved in, in, in idolatry. And it didn't take long that, uh, for, for them as well to be taken into captivity, and they, they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now, the problem with uh, the people in the north, okay, uh, Israel in the north, uh, when, when they went into captivity, some of the people were left behind. And they began to intermarry with the Assyrians and, and other cultures that the Assyrians brought in, just to, just to mix it up a bit, just so that there wouldn't be this racial purity thing and uprisings that, that many of the, the kingdoms in that, in that time uh, had to deal with, especially the, the kingdoms who came in and, and, and conquered, right? So 
it, it, was, it was really a bad scene. Now, around 580 BC, this 580 years uh, before the Common Era, before Jesus came on the scene, the, uh, the uh, is, people from Judea, from the south, were taken captive as well. They were taken captive by the Babylonians. And, uh, and they, they stayed, most of them went, as they went to Babylon, they stayed there and, and pretty much kept their belief. They kept their religion, so to speak. They kept true to their God. And a few of them stayed behind. And then after 70 years, a number of people from, the, from Babylon came back to uh, rebuild the temple. First of all, they rebuilt the temple. And then they rebuilt the wall. And after the temple and the wall were rebuilt, they began taking, very seriously taking their, their uh, uh, race and keeping their race pure. And from Pastor Jeremy's recent series on Nehemiah, we learned that. And, and they were pretty serious about it. And when, but when, when they came down to build, especially when they came down to build the temple, okay, from Babylon, the Samaritans who were hanging out around that area as well said, hey, can we help out? And the Jews who had come from Babylon, who, who were really seeking God, who were really trying to make things, uh, things good between them, themselves and God again, said, no thanks. We don't want you guys helping us. We don't, we don't need you. You guys have lost your Jewish heritage and you're not welcome to share in this sacred work with us. We don't, we don't want you. So the Samaritans, and they were called that because their, their main city was Samaria, they, they became bitter. And, and, you know, that took place 450 years before Jesus came on the scene. 450 years. And, you know, the feelings were as strong in Jesus' time as they were way back 450 years before this, when the Samaritans were told they, they couldn't help because they were racially impure and, uh, and no way, they, they, didn't, they didn't belong to Judaism. There was this real hatred between the Jews and, and the Samaritans. It was just so much history there. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of travel that took place between Galilee to the north and uh, Judea to the south, where Jerusalem was. But the Jews refused to go through Samaria for the most part. They went, they, they, took, they, they, they crossed the Jordan to the north, came down the east side of the Jordan, and then crossed back over uh, in Judea and went to Jerusalem. Six days it would take them instead of the three if they would have just said, okay, we're going to go through Samaria. We're, we're, we're just going to uh, you know, bite the bullet and, and go through Samaria. And, and, uh, but they wouldn't. They, they didn't even like the soil, believe it or not. They didn't even like for the, for the dirt to touch their feet. That's the way they were. They just, they just despised each other so much. But Jesus, here comes Jesus. Now, he's, he's the breaker of all barriers. And how many of you know that? How many of you know that? Yeah, he breaks every barrier. He, he, broke, he broke the barriers that I had in my life. I, I was whatever. And he broke down those barriers to get to me. And Jesus is the breaker of all barriers. And he needed to go through Samaria, the Bible says. You know, some of our translations are a little stronger on this. Uh, it, it says Jesus must go through Samaria. But 
however you read it, he needed to go that direction. And he knows that he must reveal himself as the Messiah to the Samaritans. And he knows that he's got to preach the gospel to the poor. He's got to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those that were bruised. He said that right at the beginning of his ministry, a quotation, a quotation right out of Isaiah chapter 61, a prophecy about himself. He knew he had to do that. He knew he was the Messiah and that the spirit of the Lord was upon him to do this. And so he goes through Samaria and he stops for a break at a well, which was about a kilometer away from from the city of Sychar. And his disciples go into the city to buy food and Jesus rests and along comes this woman and she's all by herself. Well, let's read the account, okay? I'll continue reading uh, at verse five, John chapter four. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give never, will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim? Where our ancestors worship, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you worship the Father, on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from, through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit to those who worship him, must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Wow. What about this woman? This woman. What do we find out about her from the story? And also, what do we find out about 
uh, uh, her from the culture of the day? Well, number one, she definitely had her problems. She had her shortcomings. She was actually a social outcast, not only by the Jews, but she was also a social outcast in her own people's eyes. You know, she wasn't drawing water with the other woman. For in those days, in that culture, the women all went to draw water, water together. It, it was something like, you know, our culture. The women like to go to the bathroom together, you know? They, they kind of like to, I'm off to the washroom. Anybody want to come with me? Can you imagine, guys, us talking in that way? Hey, I'm going to go water the horse. Want to come along? No. No, but the way it was in that day, the, the, the women would all go and, and go to the well together. All together. And historians tell us that there would have been wells and water in the city of Sychar, but the woman wouldn't have been welcome there. The woman, the woman this woman wouldn't have been welcome there. So she comes all alone to this other well outside of the city, a kilometer outside of the city of Sychar. You see, she was an adulteress, and, and Jesus knew that. And he even knew the details. She says, I don't believe this. You're a Jew, and even a Jewish man, and you're asking me for a drink. And Jesus says, yes, I am. And Jesus then offers her living water. And she responds, Lord, or sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And, and Jesus keeps going. He keeps going in this conversation with her. And she, he says, go get your husband and come. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, I know. I know. You've had five. Five. And the one you're living with now isn't even your husband. You see, Jesus knew all of her shortcomings. He knew how she had failed. He knew that she was an adulteress. He knew it. And it didn't put him off. And get that point. It didn't put him off. Well, what else do we see from this woman? Well, she would have been hurting for sure. This woman was ostracized and oh, how that, that must have hurt her. She wasn't only a Samaritan, she was an adulteress and she was hated by all and that just seriously must have hurt. And she would have lived with that hurt day and night. Well, we might say, well, she deserved it. She deserved it. What's she living in adultery for? What's she doing that for? She deserves it. See, Jesus knew her shortcomings and her hurt and gave her what probably no one else was prepared to give her. And that was compassion. And then Jesus goes, goes and offers her, offers her help and acceptance. Wow. What else, what else about this woman? Well, the woman had needs for sure. This woman needed love. She needed acceptance and forgiveness and living water. And Jesus knew this. He knew it. You see, when this woman came to the well, Jesus could have ignored her totally. She expected it. Why would anyone talk to her or ask her for anything? Why? Why would Jesus ask her for anything? Why? Because she was special to him? Yes? Yeah. Because she was special to him. He couldn't ignore her any more than he could ignore any one of us here today. Not a single one of us here today. In fact, you know what I believe? I believe this woman typifies each one of us here today. Each one of us here today is, is that woman. 
Jesus breaks down every barrier to get through to us. Every barrier, cultural barriers and otherwise. But he asks our permission to do it. Did you see that? He asks our permission to do it. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, at one point, you gave him permission. You opened the door of your heart so he could come in. Revelation 3.20 tells us this, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. You know, there's this old picture in, in the Alpha the Alpha video series uses an old picture. Uh, I, I, I don't even know who, who, who painted it. But it's of Jesus standing at the door of someone's heart. And you know what really is, is moving about that whole picture is the fact that there is no doorknob on the outside of the door. The only doorknob is on the inside of the door. So Jesus is knocking on the door, but he won't open the door to come in. We have to open the door to our heart. You know, I heard a, a Bible translator working in Indonesia explain a Bible translation using a dynamic equivalence versus a word-for-word -word translation approach. And he said in a certain tribe where he was working, translating the Bible into their local dialect, he had to translate Revelation 3.20 a little differently. He, he had to translate it, Behold, I stand at the door and shuffle my feet. Behold, I stand at the door and shuffle my feet. Because in that culture, only thieves knocked on someone's door. Friends shuffled their feet. So whatever the way, Jesus stands at the door of people's hearts and knocks. He shuffles his feet. He, he draws attention to himself so that we will open the door. And the woman gave Jesus permission to give, to give her living water. She asked for it, and he gave it to her. And now here's the cool part. This, this is the cool part for all of us here. If you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're listening online, Jesus wants to use you. He wants to use us to represent him to people. He wants to use us to speak to people. He wants to use us to touch people the way he touched people. People with shortcomings, people with hurts, people with needs. To speak forgiveness to people and healing and provision like love and acceptance. And the most vital piece, the most important piece is we follow his example in how he does this. About five years ago, in 2017, Carrie and I uh, were asked to, to be the team pastor of a short-term mission team to Cali, Colombia. It was a, a global exchange with Leader Impact, which is an arm of power to change. And uh, we were just excited to be a part of this team. And uh, prior, but prior to us actually going out, uh, we had three days, uh, three days of training, intense training, right on the ground there in, in Cali, Colombia. Uh, and it was during this training that my approach to sharing the wonderful message of Jesus really was challenged, and it was changed. We were taught about the law of permission. 
I, I don't like to refer to it as the law of permission. I like to refer to it as the, the permission principle. The permission principle. What a mission it was as we put into practice what we, what we had learned. We were dispersed. Like there were about 20 of us. We were dispersed throughout the city to, to prearranged meetings that the churches in Cali had set up. We went to businesses. We went to laboratories and, and dance studios. And Carrie, Carrie went and, and shared some principles from her life at a, at a dance studio. And she'll probably share some of that story on Friday night at, at Koinonia. She'll be sharing her story this Friday night at 7 o'clock. But... There she was in this environment in a dance studio and what she had prepared uh, couldn't even be used. They said, could you talk to us about, you know, and I, I forgot what it was, but she said, yes, I can. I, I can. If that's what you want, uh, I'll do that. We spoke in medical facilities and government buildings and we would share just simply a, a principle in leadership that we had learned and then we would weave into that principle how Jesus had influenced it, how Jesus had taught it to us through his example and through him being the leader of our lives. And uh, we were given permission to do this all over the city of Cali. And after each presentation, we would open it up for questions. And you know, the number one question that came, always, the number one question that was asked was, you mentioned having a relationship with Jesus. What exactly does that look like? What does that look like to have a relationship with Jesus? And I remember I was in this laboratory, and there were about 50 PhDs. It was a I thought, what am I doing here? Oh, God, help me. And here, there were about 50 PhDs. These guys were all doing research for a pharmaceutical company out of Germany. And here they were in Cali. And they asked a preacher to come and share some leadership principles with them. And I shared with them how... how uh, to build your team intentionally based on people's giftings. And, and, and I took the example of Jesus, and I said, that's how, that's how Jesus did it. And, and I learned that from him. And uh, I'll never forget these PhDs. I finished speaking. I thought they would ask me something about leadership. And they said, you mentioned something about Jesus and having a personal relationship with him. How do you do that? And I simply said, you know what? I'd need a little more of your time to be able to explain how I do that. And they said, you got it. You got the time. People, that's, that's the principle of permission right there. And we saw some amazing things take place. In that week, we saw 330, I think it was 337 people make first-time commitments to Jesus Christ. Through those simple meetings that we had, we would just share simply from our hearts. And God used that powerfully. We were given permission. And if you're in sales around here, you understand that, that very important principle of permission. It's actually a social principle. It's, it's a law almost in our culture to ask for permission. And for sure, we learn how to do this from Jesus. And, and we need to understand that the permission principle does break down barriers. 
Jesus' approach with this woman he met at the well typifies the approach that we need to take with people we meet and who are in our, in our present reality. So I want, I was, I want us to take a, a little closer look at Jesus' approach with this woman in our story. Okay, first of all, he asked the woman for something. He was friendly. He was real. Okay, just, just friendly, just a real person. I'm thirsty, you know. The woman then asked him a question. Now, she could have ignored him, but she didn't. She didn't ignore him. She engaged with him. He was given, notice this, he was given permission by her to go further in conversation with her. Through the questions she asked and also through the comments she made. So how would, how would this look for any of us? I think very much the same. You see, we make a comment or we ask a favor. Like we ask directions. And then are asked a question back oftentimes. Maybe you ask directions. Hey, I'm looking for such and such a place. Oh, are you from around here? No, no, I'm not. I'm not from around here. Or I am, but I haven't lived around here very long. Oh, well, where are you from? And on it goes. You know what I'm talking about. And especially if your roots are in Saskatchewan, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Or Newfoundland, right? You, you don't just stop with, you, you don't, the person just doesn't say, oh, up here, you know, a couple to the left, right, and whatever. No, you, you begin a long discourse with a, with a person, and, it, and it's a marvelous opportunity to just weave Jesus into, into that story. Your answer is oftentimes, or can oftentimes, when you get to a, a question that really it gets personal, your answer can be, you know, I just need a couple minutes of your time and I could tell that to you. I could share that with you. Just a couple minutes of your time. And in most cases, the answer comes back, yeah, for sure. And boom, you've got, you've got permission to give them a taste of what Jesus means to you. Permission is given us to answer. But in order to go deeper, we sometimes have to ask people some soul-searching questions or, or make a soul-searching comment like Jesus made in our story about living water. Jesus also showed us through numerous examples in the New Testament. That, uh, he, he, would, he would show through, through how he conversed with people, the religious leaders of the, of the day, but also ordinary people, how he conversed with them, and he led them along. I, I read a book a little while ago that was entitled uh, The Teaching Techniques of Jesus. And wow, Jesus was the master teacher, and he continues to be the master teacher. I, if you read the New Testament, and, and uh, since my time in, in Kali, I, I just read the New Testament in a whole new light, especially the Gospels, noticing how Jesus engaged with people, just as he did here in this story. And I, I, I give you the example of when Jesus was only 12 years old, and his parents took him to the temple, like they did every year. They came down from Galilee, they came to Jerusalem, they went to the temple, and uh, at, when he was 12, they did this, and when it was time to leave, uh, they did, and his parents thought Jesus was traveling with the crowd, but he wasn't. 
And later that night, they looked for him and, and they couldn't find him. So they went back to Jerusalem. Now, Luke chapter 2, verse 46 tells us what happened. Three days later, okay, now this is three days looking for their 12-year-old son. Three days. That, you know, that's a biggie right there, okay? They finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Now, now listen to this in verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know, it almost sounds like he was answering his own questions. And sometimes, you notice you do that in conversation with people? You answer your own, your own question and you can go deeper with people. I, I read a book a few years ago by, uh, written by Nick Ripkin. That's not his real name. Uh, and it, it's entitled The Insanity of God, and there's a video series out on it as well. A fabulous book on the persecuted church. And it's based on the verse out of Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Be aware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this, this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. Imagine that, sending you out as sheep among wolves. You look at that strategy of Jesus and you, and you, you have to think, Wow, wow, he's sending us out as sheep amongst wolves. He's sending us out so we can get killed. What a strategy. And, and Nick Ripken tells us in his book, he says once when he was in the heart of China with, with hundreds of the underground church at a disclosed location, he noticed that only certain ones were allowed to preach. Only certain ones could preach. And so he asked about it. He said, why is it that only certain pastors can preach and others are not allowed to preach? And you know what the answer was? The answer was this. Only the ones who have gone to seminary are allowed to preach. And Nick Ripkin said, seminary? And they said, well, yeah, well, well prison. <laughs> seminary for the underground church in China is prison. A few years ago, just after Arab Spring, I, I, I took a, a small team of four guys uh, to encourage the underground church in Morocco where, where it's illegal even to be a Christian. And we also went into, into Tunisia and Kuwait. And, and, and we were in danger wherever we went. We were smuggling Bibles in, but not real danger. We would have just gotten kicked out of the country. That, that's the danger. And had our stuff confiscated. But the people in real danger were the, the people we met in the underground church, which, which was revolutionary for me. I remember one day we visited this, this church in a blockhouse near Casablanca. Um, and the people, after we just spent some time praying with them and, and loving on them, uh, they, they begged us if we would stay, but we had caused a bit of a commotion. Only the four of us coming into this blockhouse, and our guide said, no, you cannot stay. It, it, it would just be too, much, too dangerous for the people, the Christian people here. It would be too dangerous, so you can't stay for the night. But I remember a military man who was part of the, the underground church. And this is Pastor 
Pastor Riley was uh, leading us in prayer for the underground church and he said, you know, pray that they would have real boldness in the situation they're in and pray that whatever comes their way, that they would, they would have the strength and the passion of Jesus to face that. And this man, uh, he was a military man and he was just off on leave and he came and expressed to us that it was very dangerous for him to be a follower of Jesus, but he spoke about Jesus and he shared the, the gospel message with them. Well, you're saying, okay, Ralph, you're talking about the, the principle of permission. <laughs> you know, what about the persecuted church? Okay, they haven't asked permission. In fact, just the opposite. That's true. But that's a whole nother topic. That's a topic of obedience. And let me, let me explain this to you. Okay, after Jesus' resurrection, the, the leaders of the day, the ones who had just had Jesus killed, told, told the disciples that they weren't allowed to speak about Jesus, weren't allowed to speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, said, we will obey God rather than man. Some of you have read that over and over and over again. We will obey God rather than man. You see, Jesus commanded his followers, as you're going through the world, whatever your world is, make disciples, influence people to be followers of me, and model what that looks like. It's a fact. Without, a, without Jesus in a person's life, there's a void. There, there is a, a hole there, a void there that only he can fill. As someone invites him, to be their leader and their forgiver, that void is filled with hope, with his joy, with his love, with his fulfillment. So people, as we have opportunity, and that's what we're talking about today, as we're given opportunity, as Jesus gives us that opportunity to speak about him, we take it. We take that opportunity, like what Jesus commanded us to do. No matter what the law says, no matter what the world leaders may say, we take that opportunity. I was thinking about the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he followed this principle. In Acts chapter 2, 12, it says, they stood there amazed and perplexed. Okay, what they just saw was a wind coming through and, and uh, uh, tongues of fire on people's heads. And they were speaking... In, in their languages, all sorts of different languages, the languages of the people who had come to visit, uh, who had come to visit Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. That's what they had. They, and so they're looking at each other. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. They asked the question. <laughs> and that's all the permission Peter needed. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. Let me tell you. And 3,000 people became followers of Jesus that day. 3,000 people got living water. And Jesus' followers in the early church, early church learned that as well, like Philip. Remember, some of you would know the story of, of Philip, how he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And there's a guy riding on a chariot or a carriage, uh, a guy from Ethiopia. He's riding along and he's reading something. And the Bible says in Acts 8, verse 29, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, 
Do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. Permission. Permission. I love our youth's hoodies. I I actually wanted to wear one today uh, for show and tell. But uh, I thought, you know, I'd stand up here and it would be so so brutally hot. But our youth's uh, new hoodies... uh, I love it. It begs a few questions. The front says good news. So somebody looks at that good news. And I'll tell you, people from the world, they don't know. They don't hear a lot of good news. Okay, good news. And the back answers. From death to life. And someone could ask, what does that mean? Young people, it means that's what happens. When I followed Jesus, I went from death to life. Or you could say, well, I'd love to tell you that, but, you know, I, I need about three minutes of your time. That's the law of permission. And if someone asks, hey, are you a Christian? You answer and say, well, that depends. On what? On your definition of what a Christian is. Ever wonder why Jesus used the analogy of fishing when he spoke of evangelism? When he was talking about the good news? Think about the net. Just bringing in the net. Think about, okay, some of you fly fishermen. Think about that that hook going out there. Think about it, hooking it. You know, the hook. The net. And I know that some of us here are, are are kind of freaked out, I think. Uh, really freaked out at the thought of someone finding out that you're, you're religious. We're kind of like a chameleon or a CIA agent, kind of wanting to blend in, you know, just blend in with the crowd. You know, church family, there's so many in our world who are just exactly like the woman at the well, they're living in despair. Without hope. Many in your, many in my world are watching YouTube channels like stuff on despair deaths or the depopulation bomb or health crisis or the incredible rise in heart related deaths or workforce crisis or elections galore from all over the world. And most don't see a lot of hope. But there you are follower of Jesus or there you come we have so much hope to bring the hope shows on our faces and the hope shows in our demeanor or at least it should and we get asked about it and we get permission to speak about it and Jesus is the answer he is our only hope how does the world know this except through us Paul asks a question to the Romans, and I'm closing with this. Romans 10, 14 to 15. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? And then he says, and I love this, that is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. It's a quote from Isaiah 52, 7. 
Well, Christmas is coming. And people need hope. Jesus brought hope. And, and he's the only hope giver. Many of you are involved in, in our pantry. Many of you are involved in, in the shop of wonders and more of you are, are getting involved. And many of you are involved in outreaches into our community, to our care homes and, and, and in other places. You're involved. What an opportunity we have to get permission to share the hope that we have. When asked, why are you doing this? We can simply say it's because of Jesus. Well, what does he have to do with it? If you've got a couple minutes, I can tell you. You got a couple minutes, I could tell you. Here's the thing, we have to be ready to share. 1 Peter 3.15 says, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Just as Jesus knew the woman in Samaria, he knows each one of us here this morning. He knows you, he knows me, he knows everybody, every one of you watching online this morning. And he knows those who you love. He, he knows those you work with. He knows those who are in your community. And Jesus knows all about them, just like he knows all about you. And he knows about their failings. And he wants to forgive. And he knows people's hurts. And he desires to heal. And he knows people's needs. And he wants to meet all those needs. He does. And he wants to use you and me to do that. He wants to use us. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in people's lives here today. I thank you, Spirit of God, for the fresh wind that you give us, that you blow over us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your saving grace. I pray for the people of God here in this room, for the people of God listening online. I pray that they know your hand of blessing on their lives. I pray that they know you're leading in their lives. And I pray that they know and speak with boldness the words you give them to speak for you, dear Lord. Thank you for today. And thank you for your precious presence. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a great Jesus-filled week.